0: Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. Today, I'm delighted to welcome award-winning poet, teacher and encourager of creative writing, Kate Clancy, to the podcast. Kate runs poetry workshops in schools and enables often traumatized children of migrants and refugees to find their inner voice. Kate, thank you for joining me. Pleasure. Your anthology, The Poems from a School, was published in 2018 in collaboration with pupils at the Oxford Spire's Academy. You say in the introduction that poetry is for everyone and not a privileged elite.
1: How does your work bear that out to date? Well, I think what's you know the the kids' poems are good. That's the thing that people say about England Poems from a School. You know, they and often with surprise they say it's not that they've these are sad children, it's that the poems are good and they genuinely are. And um, over the last decade, I've produced, found good poems, good writers among children um, and, and also actually adults as well um, you know, in just working in um, different workshops with refugees and people around the city. But th- there, there are actually good writers everywhere and especially um, among children who are changing languages Um, especially among children who um, might be to have learning difficulties, who've been through different big changes in their lives. They've got lots and lots to say and they really can write poetry and they can write it almost disturbingly well. And that makes you think that maybe what we're doing is stopping people writing on a very large scale. And if we allowed people to write poetry more, there would just be a lot of very good poems in the world, maybe a confusingly large number of them.
0: Mm. So can you tell us some more about the students and their journeys into this
1: position of writing such incredible poems? Um, Well England Poems from a School was written over 10 years it's got um, 10 years worth of work in it Um, and I worked in lots and lots of different groups across the school so you know a whole class of year sevens for example um, but also selected groups of just six or seven year elevens or twelves. I had groups of kids who were dyslexic groups of kids who were very recently in this country and we had a um, an initiative with oxford university to bring home language poets into the school and that was very powerful so we had polish writers come in and write with the polish kids and arabic writers come in actually quite a few arabic writers because that we've got an awful lot of different different sorts of arabic across the school arabic writers come in and write in arabic with the kids and inevitably in arabic and in translation and across different arabics Mm. Um, and we had, um, you know, Persian writers and Swahili writers and all sorts of different people come in and and work and work with the students in their own languages, and that seemed to enable them also to write in English. So it was a very rich, varied kind of practice, doing different sorts. I used the A level creative um, writing while it existed quite a lot mm-hmm. to kind of give an incentive. I did after school groups, I did lunchtime groups, I just did, an, you know, an awful lot of different things.
0: And the children had come from many different, places. many, many,
1: many different backgrounds. The, the school is. Um, a very varied school. It's sort of the chosen school of Oxford's migrants. I mean, people think of Oxford as this white posh place, but actually, the east of the city, um, which serves the car plants and the hospitals, and which is so near to Heathrow, is um, part of it. Falls into the bottom ten percent of the UK index of poverty. The Rose Hill area that that, that we serve. That's right next to the school. It's right next to Iffley Village, which is one of the poshest places in the country. So, it's more like a Hackney demographic in our mm. school. It's got kids from almost everywhere, really global. They're not, it's not that we, we have a substantial Pakistani minority, but um, they're still a minority. And and the white kids are also a minority. So, it's a, a genuinely global village. Mm.
0: One of the poems that particularly moved me was by Mohammed, who was 12 when he wrote it. Mm-hmm. And
1: it's called The Word Umi, my mother. I wonder if you would read it for us. So um, Mohammed wrote this just after he arrived from Lebanon. um, He came from Syria, but he'd been in a refugee camp in Lebanon for two years. And then he arrived in Oxford and he was really stuck. He wasn't really wanting to learn English. Um, And an Arabic poet came in. And he wrote this first in Arabic and then it took a while for it to be translated. And and then when we saw the translation, it was just very moving. So he was given the word Umi, which means my mother. It also means, you know, my community, my, my everything, my country. And so um, Umi, my beloved mother, when I go to my house, the pain of missing her arrives before me. Wow, it's really moving, isn't it? Very moving and powerful. And he
0: wrote this in Arabic first? He wrote it
1: in Arabic, translated into English. Mm. Um, And he carried on writing in Arabic for um, quite a while. He didn't really want to write in English. So he did... um, I did different things with Muhammad, but basically, in the end, I settled for just spending an hour with him every week and showing him poems in Arabic and... Doing different sort of, I got different people in to help me from the university to translate his work. So we were kind of translating, and then he was also starting to. And then the way I finally got him to write was to sit him in a group of um, EAL students who were older, eighteen-year-old boys. He liked bigger boys, Um, and in that group where there were a lot of Kurdish boys and Afghan boys, Pashto speakers, he started to write in English as a common language.
0: Mm. Um, Let's hear another one of his poems. Um, when My Teacher Asked Me.
1: When My Teacher Asked Me. So this was written um, during one of the days when I was in charge of Muhammad, which used to happen because it, he was quite understandably angry quite a lot of the time. Um, he'd had a lot of things to make him angry in his life. But he did like poetry and that would make him behave. So I, 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 I was in charge of Muhammad, but I was also in charge of supervising the Swahili workshop, poetry workshop, which was being run by my former student, as for Awad. Um, and so I just in the end parked Muhammad at the back of this group and I said you know just behave yourself Muhammad Asfa was a refugee too and you've got some things to learn and he just looked at me with his slightly askance look Um, and then he wrote this poem in Arabic and then we he was listening to the kids doing call and response in Swahili Mm -hmm. so Asfa was giving them lines in Swahili and they were um, responding back some of them were responding back in Swahili and some of them responding back in English there was kind of a mixture going on and he was listening to that and he came up with this poem which goes when my teacher asked me what I was going to be I did not think of refugee but the child who saw a war who left his country to strangers that's me refugee refugee the word the west was holding for me so um it's an answer to me and my do gooding and you're a refugee, as far as a refugee to Mohammed. It's an answer. And he didn't um he didn't write it with those rhymes, he wrote it quite elegantly phrased Arabic, and it was translated in kind of a communal effort, which involved um Google Translate, mm. um, a, an Arabic-speaking teacher who came in from down the corridor, and um an older Syrian girl who was brought in to supervise the last bit. So it was kind of a communal translation that we came up with. He did really, he did specifically approve the rhymes. He liked them. Mm. And it, so his, yeah.
0: his multilingualism is really infor, sort of informing his creative writing.
1: I mean, yeah, it's insane what was happening in that room. There were all, there was the, he was listening to the rhythms of Kaswahili. Kaswili, he was listening to Asva, who had a, a beautiful rhymed poem up on the wall in English about one island and another one, about uh, it, yeah, her her different islands that she'd come from. Um, and so that that was on in English on the board. There were li- there was also this um, different language call and response going on with the rhythms, and then there were different languages down the corridor and between from all of those things. He was thinking about the word refugee mm. and what that meant. And it's an amazing poem, you know. Isn't it, it? It is written by Muhammad. It's also written by the collective mind. And I do, I I do believe in that. I believe in. I think poetry isn't an individual thing. I think it's a call and response thing um, uh, it comes with your language it comes with your collective memory and and children are more than themselves that when they when they when they produce that they're producing Mm. bits of culture
0: so how does he feel about his language capabilities does he um you know is his knowledge of arabic valued in the school
1: community and um he did he did gain status by being a poet Mm. people um, people responded, especially when he, he, Muhammad had a couple of viral tweets. Um, one about I have divided my heart and things and got you know two hundred fifty thousand got it got retweeted by Muhammad Salah. That meant a huge amount. He had he had this um, you know he was admired by big cultural figures and he gained status from that. He he felt, I mean, he felt a huge loss. And one of his most moving poems was about uh, how difficult it was to write with the wrong hand. Mm. And another of them was about, you know, what a lot he'd had. Because as far as he was concerned, he, you know, he was a middle-class kid from Syria and he'd been top of the class. He'd been the cleverest kid. Yeah. And then he said two years out of school and he'd arrived in this place where he was no longer clever.
0: And that's the poem, is it, where he's talking about writing from right to left?
1: Yeah, that's right. When we written in the same session with the Syrian kids when he, he and he said, with the um, Swahili kids, and he wrote this poem about... Um, When I was in Syria, I did not know how happy I was when I raised my hand to spell the word happiness when I got each letter correct. Now my hand is gloved in strangeness. Now I try to write the name of my country from the wrong margin, four letters. Each letter hurts. And I I remember translating that with him, gloved in strangeness, and it came up on Google Translate. My hand is inside the strangeness. Mm. And that was kind of a, a, you know, a... A pantomime that we did. Do you mean inside inside like in a glove, yeah. In a glove. Gloved in strangeness.
0: It's a really beautiful metaphor. It's a wonderful it, metaphor, it? yeah. yeah. For think... how
1: you feel, for alienation.
0: Mm, yeah. And language learners can relate to that, that your yeah. you know, your voice isn't quite your own or your hand as you're writing in that new language, it's not quite your own. Yeah. Even when I was learning French, I just felt like I couldn't be funny and witty in French for a long time. So you don't feel quite like yourself. Even yeah. that you think Five minutes after the conversation's moved on of a hilarious sort of riposte. You can't, you can't do it. You, yeah. The timing's gone and that sort
1: of thing. It can feel like you're sort of out of sync with... I think that's why they like poems, especially. I mean, I, I've i observed it many times, you know, very bright kids who were top of the class. So um, Shukriya, who Shukriya Yi was one of the most remarkable people I ever taught. She had been top of her class in Afghanistan best, 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 you know, the, the best student. And that was a huge sense of pride to her. She came to England and she was made stupid. But immediately, you know, she was. She, what she wanted to do was write poems because in poems she was still clever. And in poems she could join up image and language and she could produce something that was superb. And Mohammed had that experience as well. Mm. Important. So tell us a bit more about some other
0: peoples you've worked with. Um, how are they also using their multilingualism in
1: creating their poems? Um, well, Shukriya was an interesting example. So Shukriya um came she she so she was a Hazara um refugee, so she came from the Hazara minority in Afghanistan. So they, they are the um they farsi speaking monks, sort of Mongolian faced look they look different, more they almond shaped eyes, rosy cheeked people who live um, you know, by the Buddhas of Bamiyan, the people who eat apricots and live forever. And she she came to this country fleeing from the Taliban, fleeing from Sunni oppression. Her school was closed down, like Malala's school was closed down by the, by the Taliban. Mm. Um, and she, but she had this... Hazara people have a very strong tradition of oral poetry. And, you know, for, so Chukri's mum doesn't read and write, but she does um, recite an awful lot of poetry. And grew grown, had grown up with lots of Farsi poems and the, the, Rumi, the poet Rumi was very important to her. And she wrote poems in English. She had an extra year at school, because we raised some money with the Forward Arts Foundation for her to have an extra year and work with EAL students. Um, and then she became obsessed with the Coleman Barks English translations of Rumi, and from those she started making her own poems in English. And it was a it was a really odd sort of thing because you know they're sort of hippieish and sentimentalized, and they're not rhymed at first. Shukriya was very obsessed by the fact that English doesn't have enough rhymes and the Arabic students say that as well. But somehow the Coleman-Barks offered her a translation of how her images could be be conveyed in English and working on those images in English, she was able to create her own sort of Persian-inflected images in English of her own. And she she really produced some remarkable poems.
0: Mm. And what about... Timmy, I remember you telling me about Timmy, who was writing about the English
1: language. Timmy and san yeah. Timmy was amazing. He arrived from Nigeria, age 16, I think, 15, nearly 16. Um, he had to away do his GCSEs, poor Timmy, which was not a great experience. Um, he, he writes English that sounds Nigerian. It's a remarkable experience. And he writes about English and about English words a lot. Timmy's English it has actually been set to music. It's a um, brilliant, brilliant poem. And we we were talking about different words and what they meant. I walked down the road thinking, don't make me mate. Don't make that old face to mouth like a squirrel eating its favourite rubbish or a bird munching its favourite delicious fly, making delicious fly noises. Enormously, obviously, literally. Their favourite word is actually. Minor, pardon and excuse me. I feel deaf and dumb. I want to speak like that. Mm. And it's, a, it, 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 it's, so, it's so rare. I remember Timmy wrote about coming everybody's eyes in England and the transparent depths and suddenly everyone has transparent eyes. Mm. And he lets you see white people from the outside. Um, he lets you see yourself from the outside and he's doing that with the language there you know, suddenly you hear yourself saying enormously, obviously, and making a face like a like a squirrel, you know, with that, not opening your mouth wide, but opening your mouth narrowly and saying, Shh. it's quite brilliant, I think, absolute genius poem. I and mean, he's a very, very natural poet, Timmy. He's just a beautiful observer of things, very, very thoughtful, um, and m- many things that come out of his mouth are poems. He's got a very strong sense of what they are.
0: Did he start learning English at 16?
1: No, he was, um, had, had some English from Nigerian, but it was very much, um, you know, Nigerian English that he brought. Yeah. Um, but what, he was brought um, by Mukhang, uh, who's Nepalese, to the poetry group. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have these nice cross-cultural things going on the whole time.
0: Yeah. And are there any more examples of children talking about their mother tongue and their learning process, learning English?
1: Um, well, so, I mean, they, 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 they come in different stages, so you get very sophisticated students. So Mugahang is currently reading English at Oxford, so that's a, a long way to travel from Nepal. Um, but he you know, he writes quite a lot about his his language and his mother and the different words and the different things that they understand. There's just a tiny little poem in here called OK, which I'm going to find. There is a Nepalese word "okay," which is not the same as being okay. She is the obedient, polite twin of "okay," who lowers her head and clasps palms to say namasti, to say "I will, I will, and please," all at the same time.
0: Wow, they yeah. really pack a punch, don't they? Oh yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there is no point in leaning back, and um, no, there's no point in no point in being soft. Yeah.
0: So, Kate, how does it work as a teacher working with such a diverse group of pupils? Do you look at them in different language sets? You've mentioned a couple of cross-cultural friendships there. Are there ever any kind of rivalries or difficulties?
1: Well, I'm sure there are. Um, I mean... I'm sure there are. And, you know, they're speaking in their own language, Miss, is one of the yells that goes back, goes up from the back of the class. It's one of the things that kids protest against most strongly that other children are speaking their own language and they assume they're saying nasty things. So everyone speaks English together. Overwhelmingly, it's a great thing. You know, overwhelmingly, people make cross-cultural friendships. Because it's such a mixed school, they genuinely make cross-cultural friendships. They don't get stuck in um, their own language groups so it it's a genuine mixer. i think if you have you know say half pakistani and half white kids in a school then people go to different sides but it's not really possible to do that in our school because there are just too many groups so people have to mix and that's very civilized you know Mm. that genuinely makes a warm civilization because you have to concentrate on your common humanity you absolutely do talk about what that means um so, and, and, you know, we have we do these specialist language interventions, but what's interesting is when you get a Muhammad at the back of the Qaswili workshop, you know, that they the, the mixture is just very rich and they're coming across as very rich and they, they're endlessly kind of examining each other's metaphors and seeing freshly the way that they, they talk.
0: And are they interested in that? Like, oh, that's a sort of, I don't know, a Persian perspective
1: on this issue and is a don't think you know Don't they would know, put it like that, yeah. but they're interested in each other's metaphors. They're interested yeah. in each other's verse. Mm. They're interested in each other's testimony and stories.
0: Do they borrow
1: words from each other? The, I think they, that they make yeah, the kind of different things get included in their English. Mm. We do, we know we we have a lot of fun with Google Translate. That they um, that's something we do quite regularly. They love to do that. You make a string of metaphors and then you push it through Google Translate. Yeah, and then you push it back again. You know, so if you push it through BASC and back and then it comes into. You, you know, you see which bits what metaphors get added to the language.
0: So Google translates adding these
1: Adding yeah. You put yeah. it you put it into basque. Um so you put you know the floodgates have opened and you put it into basque and it turns it into something else. And then you translate it from back into English mm-hmm. and it gives birth to a goat or something. It's very interesting to see what happens. And then they take it back and play yeah. with that. And... Yeah, no, They, they they like that. They like the kind of alienated language. They like the the way that metaphors sound cool.
0: Yeah, metaphors do sound cool, don't they? So given that some of these children have had fairly traumatising experiences, are there some darker moments that come through and emotions that come through in their poetry? I'm thinking there was one about anger that was really short.
1: My anger. Um, I I wrote that in... um, That was actually not in school. That was a little eight-year-old. My anger is the smallest poem in all the world. Um, Was just I mean I, I do this workshop my spelling my anger my concentration and get people to personify little bits of it mm. and that was just a little Syrian girl and again I think that was also about inherited trauma as well as speaking for herself she was there with her mum and it was a holiday group there were, there were mums and sisters in the room and I think she was feeling her voice was small mm. but they, they were talking about kind of collective loss so that there was mm-hmm. that feeling in the world and that is a Three-line poem. Three-line poem, which is quite an Arabic thing to do. You Mm -hmm. know, it's like um Umi. An aphorism is quite an Arabic thing.
0: Mm -hmm. But given that it's only a three-line poem, it just...
1: It does a lot lot of jobs, yeah. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And it's really
0: powerful. Is there a sense at all for the children of any catharsis as working through these things? I don't know. I mean,
1: I never ask them to say that they've been through a cathartic experience. I think that's oppressive. Yeah. Um, I never, um, and I never encourage them to particularly confess to anything. All we ever do is look at poems and shapes of poems and encourage them to write their poem. That's the best poem. So we just keep focusing on the poem and the satisfaction of having written a good poem Mm -hmm. and also the satisfaction of being heard because that's quite big. You know, you put your poem out there and you go, wow, look, these people have read it and that's great. And that really made me understand your experience and your friend understood your experience. Um, I think afterwards they will say, yeah, that really helped me. I really helped me to express myself. I think we do too much of getting kids to write evaluations after an hour and a half to say that they feel better. I I really dislike that. And I dislike the kind of harvesting of... um, you know the harvesting of a Freudian cathartic, whatever. I, I I think I think that makes it all too loaded. I think it we, we what what's what's powerful and helpful to people is to say, here's a place where we tell stories. Here are the shapes that we tell stories. You put your story into that, and we'll be he- hearing and exchanging stories. And then your story is held. Your story is contained. Your story is not some great big thing that lives inside you that's going to hurt you. Um, and it's, it's safe, a poem is a safe place and I think if you kind of load it up and say, do you feel better now then that makes it less safe, so I suppose that's why I don't do it very often.
0: Yeah, well, I'm really with you on that one. Um, there was one poem, The Most Romantic Thing Ever. <laughs> it's very funny isn't it? It's Yeah, it really struck me, it's yeah. super dark, would you mind reading it?
1: Yeah, well, this is Jasmine um, Jasmine is uh, Jasmine's currently reading maths at St Andrews, she's um, remarkable person very 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 clever um I did A-level creative writing with her when she was in year nine just because it just seemed like it was before the A-level creative writing was going to close down so I had McGang and Helen who's now also Oxford and Jasmine um, and Vivian who is now interesting languages just these very very able good kids and we did A-level creative writing all got A-star so Jasmine knows exactly what she's doing very, very ironical piece. The most romantic thing ever. Once two sparrows got trapped inside a mine, the miners threw down crumbs and they thrived in the perfect dark until there was a family, a flock, who couldn't see each other and could barely fly and knew nobody else.
0: Do you think she knows she's written the perfect post-Brexit Britain metaphor? <laughs> I don't
1: know. She. I don't know, I mean... Jasmine was such a sophisticated writer. She must know what she was doing. Mm. You know, she's very well read as well and just exceptionally, exceptionally clever. I mean, those kids also occur in, in schools. Mm. You know, you can get, you do get naively produced amazing poems and then you get the Jasmines who know what they're doing or begin to know what they're doing. Yeah, Yeah.
0: And as the teacher, we've already touched upon the sort of emotional sort of traumas they might have experienced, but you know, it sounds like you're not going to get involved with that. But if you know some really dark things pour out of the children, is there something that teachers can do to handle that side of things? Or,
1: well, teachers shouldn't be afraid of stories. Mm. Um, I, you know, children tell me all sorts of things. And I don't find it especially heavy burden, because they're making poems, and then their poem is their is their suitcase and their carry away, and their work of art and the things that they've made. It's not a it's not an uncontained flood. I think teachers shouldn't be afraid of stories. Mm. I really do. They they, they they. I mean, of course, you know, people always say disclosure, which is one of the nastiest words in the English language sort of goes along with moist, yuck. Um, if there, it, 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 so disclosure sounds horrid and it sounds scary. And of course you need to you know, say, okay, there's disclosure and there's painful stuff being revealed and there's maybe stuff that needs intervention. And I'm a properly trained, fully qualified teacher. And I've got every respect for every, and keep myself up with every procedure that's in the school. And I have on occasions referred people to mm-hmm. different things and certainly always told people different things. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm. Uh, well, it doesn't mean I don't. I don't. I feel perfectly well qualified to receive people's poems, though. and I think people should feel confident that they they're also well qualified to receive people's poems. You lean into the poem, yeah. yeah. just lean into the poem. Make the poem. We're making a poem, mm. and I think to always say to kids, "This is what the poet feels," and in your poem, "This is what the poet's saying," rather than, "This is absolutely gospel truth." If you give them the, the space, you know, so quite often writing in the third person is very liberating for people. Mm-hmm. So not, not I came home, but the boy came home, gives you just gives you an extra bit of um, space, often to tell the truth through fiction.
0: Yeah. So why does writing poetry matter? Should we not just focus on helping these children learn English
1: as quickly as possible? Well, it does make them learn English as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another effect of it, <laughs> because... It's very, very motivating um, to to use English well. And it. We, I think one of the problems with learning something rich, like um, a language, is that the measurements are also in a language. So we have this rich and complex thing that we're measuring with tools which are necessarily thin and poor, um, which are other bits of language. So we have to say in thin, poor language, what rich progress they've made. And that always falls down. Um, somebody who's writing a rich poem in English with good images has made rich progress that you can't actually sum up, or well, you can try, but you'll waste your time um, using thin tools. So I think it does bring them English, it brings them expression, it brings them motivation, it not it ties them up with the culture. Um, well, one of the one of the things I was saying, you know, I, I believe is when we teach. We know that most people across most time have been illiterate and multilingual. So we must know that there's bits of our brains that are there to grasp language and grasp code by immersion. That's how most people have learned over most time. And in non-writing societies, multilingual societies, that's what they're still doing. We know that children are especially incredibly good at this. And you know, that that Your brain gets a little bit worse over time. Really young children are incredibly good at it. And we also know that really young children can't learn language functionally. They can't learn it by being told this is the grammar. They can learn it superbly by immersion. So I think a poem, and I don't know why we waste time on making children learn labels in year six. I think it's an absolute crime because clearly it's not how they learn best. Mm. Children will learn English by immersion as well. They'll learn their own language by immersion. That's one of the things I keep trying to tell people. If you immerse a child in a rich poem, and by child I mean you know, 13, 14, 15-year-old, in a rich bit of English, they will give you the patterns back. They will do that. Any Anybody will do that. Somebody between languages who's listening out even more will do it even more. I think a poem abolishes those kind of hierarchies and structures of functional learning. So when we do functional learning, we say verbs matter more than vocabulary. You have to learn the structures of the verbs before you can move on to the vocabulary. When you do immersion learning, you you learn the verb attached to its idiom very often. Mm -hmm. You might not be aware of when you're shifting from past to present or that you're using the subjunctive. You just do it because it's attached to other bits of language. Poems is everything all attached. It's images and sounds and rhythms Um, all attached to each other and all attached to each other in a way that helps you remember. So it's got to be just a very rich learning tool. If you're inside a poem, writing a poem, you're learning all sorts of other things that are attached to it. It's a great big clump of language. And I think it's just much more powerful to learn language in clumps, whether it's your own language or whether it's another language.
0: Great. We're going to talk a bit more in our second part of the podcast about this particular aspect. Me and my clumps, yes. Just to um, round off part one of our talk, what kind of positive outcomes have the children experienced from writing poetry with you?
1: Oh, I mean, we have got loads of incredible um, stories. So um, I had Shukriya round last two couple of nights ago and we were going over her master's application to do master's in interna- international relations. Um, and she came from Afghanistan aged 14 having had only a very basic primary education. Um, and she really genuinely made her progress through through poetry. So that's that's an incredible outcome because she's going to go back and, you know, change other people's lives, which it's is amazing. wonderful. It's amazing. Um, Mugahang is at Oxford doing English <laughs> and he won the Outspoken Prize, which is an adult prize. Wow. Um, Aisha Borjo is severely dyslexic and yeah, half Colombian. She is um, was a Rathbone's Folio mentee. She's a uh, properly pledged. She's won the national poetry competition. She's won the foil competition three times. You know, we, they, we've I've lost count of how many poetry competitions we've won, but we've won lots. So they, you know, they, um, Amina Abu Karesh, who's a Syrian refugee, she won the John Betjeman competition, um, and she's um, she, her poems been set to the National Orchestra of Wales. And it's been made into cartoons, and she's been on—you know—she's been to Germany and read to audiences of thousands. So her poem really has, you know, gone the circuit.
0: There's like the school's sort of sporting, sort of special
1: accolade. Yeah, we we won all the medals. Yeah, we definitely did.
0: That's wonderful. Is there a poem that we can finish with?
1: This is after Rumi, and it's that thing I was saying about (laughs) the, the rhythms and the images. So Shukriya wrote this after the Coleman-Barks translation of Rumi's Ode on Exile. So Rumi's Ode on Exile is enormous and rhymed and in Persian. The Coleman-Barks version is much shorter and in English. Shukriya knew the Persian version, but wrote this adaptation of the English version. So it's a strange bit of translation, really, but it's very powerful um, and, and Rumi writes about, um, last year I admired wine, so he had posh wines in the wine glass and he looked at all the sediment in them. And Shokri has turned it into a glass of tea. Mm. And she said that's what she is, a glass of tea. Last year I held a glass of tea to the light. This year I swirl like a tea leaf in the streets of Oxford. Last year I stared into navy blue sky This year, I'm roaming under colourless clouds. Last year, I watched the dazzling sun dance gracefully. This year, the faint sun moves futurelessly. Migration drove me down this bumpy road, where I fell and smelt the soil, where I arose and sensed the cloud. Now I am a bird flying in the breeze, lost over the alien earth. Don't stop and ask me questions. Look into my eyes and feel my heart. It is bruised, aching and sore. My eyes are veiled with onion skin. I sit helplessly in an injured nest, not knowing how to fix it. And my heart, I'd say, is displaced, struggling to find its place.
0: Kate Clancy, thank you very much.